You're about to listen to the Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders and for coders about all aspects of life as a developer. I'm Will, the curmudgeonly experienced developer. And I'm Beach, the optimistic newbie developer. Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast. Before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? I've been dealing with some very interestingly constructed code, and I'm trying to be nice. It's it's as if somebody simultaneously misunderstood object-oriented programming, C-sharp, web development, and database transactions all at the same time. As, as in, you mean they... They shouldn't have coded. Absolutely knew nothing about what they were doing. I think they did, like, they used more advanced language constructs to make a dumpster fire. I mean... Copy and paste? It wasn't copy... It might have been copy and paste. You know, like, when I see that, I look. Like, I'll take a line of it that... I'm like, hey, this looks a little bit more profound than what I'm used to looking at. So Mm -hmm. let me put it in Google and see if Lay Google turns up anything. Yeah. And nothing came up. Um, Of course, a lot of times when you find crap code, it's like, oh, MSDN. Hello. (laughs) Because, you know, there's... There's some stuff out there that's kind of, it's sample code, and people copy and paste it, and it's like, oh, by the way, yeah, this leaks database connections. Oh, by the way, this leaks, you know, file handles, or whatever. Yeah, it's it's sample code for a reason, because it's explaining one specific thing, not... And somebody can't bother to read the article. Yeah. Uh, but this doesn't appear to be in that case. Like, there's um, there's kind of an aggregate root that is being written to, and then there's child objects under that, like two or three levels down and, you know, a couple of nodes across. And those are not being written within a transaction. So like they're creating this structure, but they're doing it one thing at a time and they're doing it in disparate web pages. So like, you know, you create one part and you click next, what created the first part. And then you do the next piece and click next and it creates the second part. And it's like, okay, this thing, this object has no coherence without all these pieces in place. Why did you do it that way? And you know, you can yell that at the screen all you want. That coder isn't there anymore. He don't live here no more. So it really doesn't do anything to complain about it. It's just, it. I've been cleaning up a lot of really badly entangled ASP.NET that's legacy probably three or four years back. Stuff like um, sending somebody to a page and having query string parameters with, you know, like there's a query string parameter that's being passed in, you know, that's like mode equals n, and n means, oh, hey, it's a new record. So when you do a get request and it goes to the next page, it goes, oh, I got a get request and mode equals n, so create a new record. Do you understand okay. the problem with that? I don't think so. Okay, well, it's a get request. Get requests are not supposed to mutate data. The reason is, is because you refresh and what happens? You get a new get request, which then the same mutation again. So if you added a record and you refresh oh, that page, that's oh, bad juju. My goodness, it's just it like it just clicked in my head what you were saying. Right. And there's a tangle of that stuff. And what oh, makes it goodness. worse is it goes into that page, the guy reads in these query string parameters, shoves them into public properties, which that's okay. Um but those the backing store for those public properties is view state. 
right? Uh-huh. In, he inconsistently uses those. So sometimes he reads it out of the query string. Sometimes he reads it out of view state. And sometimes he reads it out of the property that, depending on how you got in there, could have come from either of those or both. It's a neural network. You almost have to figure out what has a greater weight to determine what the activation state of that thing is. It's nearly impossible to debug. And I've broken all kinds of stuff because I have very, made very simple changes that should not have an impact because of reentrant issues into the page, they do. The complexity of what you just said almost blows my mind. Well, it's like... Actually, it probably does blow my mind, and I'm just being, you know, you're being full of myself. Let's say that you have a ball of spaghetti. Let's say that you follow... You want to try to follow one noodle through the pile of spaghetti without moving the other pieces. This is what the term spaghetti code comes from. It's reentrant issues into the same place where there should be a single flow. There's a whole bunch of flows crossing each other. It's like that game with the sticks that you try to pull one stick without knocking the whole thing down. Or family tree in West Virginia. Whatever. Hey. Hey. <laughs> My family's from West Virginia. I know. That's why you said that. <laughs> That's exactly why I said that. But, you know, I mean, I'm from Tennessee, so we're not a whole lot better off. <laughs> You know, nobody nobody truly has a family tree. Everybody has a family directed acyclic graph. It's just some people have the nodes a little closer together. Oh my god. So what about you? What <laughs> now else? that I've completely uh now that I've completely broken your focus, how's your week? Well speaking of, of families, uh Today is my mom's birthday, so... Hello, Dolores. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Mom. Uh, she does listen to the podcast occasionally, so she may be listening. Um, but not till way after her birthday. That's true. She usually listens a day or two after the podcast comes out. But this is coming out on her birthday. Uh, I had an interesting conversation with my dad the other day. We were... Uh, we were driving. It was about an hour-long drive. Did, did did he tell you what happens when a man loves a woman? When a man loves a woman. Did he sing it? That would be that would be hilarious. Actually, my dad has a really great singing voice. I'm the only one in my family that didn't get a good singing voice. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't either. I kind of sound like somebody stepped on a frog, except it's worse. Yeah. Yeah. You've heard me sing. Yeah. It's not. I, I sat beside you in chapel. It's not. Yeah, you know, you try to do it because you're supposed to. <laughs> you know, there's there's just some doors that shouldn't be opened. There's... So, so my dad and I, he brought this up. We had a conversation about beards. Because, yeah. you know, uh, since he's retired, he's grown out his beard. And he was talking about how he wants to grow his beard. About three or four more inches than what it is. So, like, what what kind of length are we talking about? Are we talking like a half ZZ or a half a full ZZ. ZZ? Half ZZ. Okay. Yeah, yeah ZZ top is a unit of measurement. Uh, it is for us uh, neck beards, at least. Yeah. Like, he, he was talking, he's like... Well, like, you have, like, different units of measurement. Like, you have the ZZ top as the unit of length, and then you have the Robert Plant as the unit of wildness. Really? I use Duck Dynasty. People think I'm a member of that family sometimes when they see me, so I don't like to bring them up. <laughs> yeah, well, you don't have Louisiana on your license plate. There is that. I do. <laughs> and I have the big beard. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, I don't have the long hair. <laughs> I, you know, my, my father actually um, said something to the effect of, 
you look like you should be jumping off a boat and burning a monastery down with that beard and that hair. Which I presume was a reference to Viking raiders <laughs> as opposed to just general malcontents burning monasteries. I can actually see your dad saying that. So yeah, that he's like, sense. he goes, your name ought to be Lars. And I'm like, but I'm not part of Metallica. You know, I guess it's time to, speaking of Metallica, it's time to face the music, except this music we can actually copy. Well, uh, to be honest with you, uh, this week I got a surprise for you. Um, our good friend down in uh, down in Atlanta, one of the Jasons we know, um, just like you, is not a huge fan of the music I chose for IOTs. So he is a musician and has given me some music to use. And I think this is going to be our new IOTs music. So. Sweet. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to uh, extracting the earworm here. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, honestly that- I like I like this music even better, and I liked the IOTs music before, but I like this even better. Yeah, the other one was a little bit uh, it was a little bit distracting. So anyway, so, I so guess let's uh, roll the new music. This week for IOTs, I have another product for kids. This is called the Fever Scout, and it's a wearable thermometer. Now, uh, I recently had to go to the hospital for uh, the joy of kidney stones, which I think I talked about in a previous episode. But uh, they they took my temperature with the uh, little thing they put on your forehead. I'd not ever had one of those used. thought it was really neat, and... Uh, this is a sticker that uh, you put on uh, on a child. It's comfortable and not really noticeable. Of course, it's a sticker that's colorful, and they'll think it's really neat. Um, but it has continuous remote monitoring. So you have a sick kid, you can put the sticker on them, and they think it's really cool they've got a sticker. And it keeps you updated as to their temperature. Uh, sends a message straight to your phone. Has a rechargeable battery with a charging dock, so it can be available whenever needed. And again, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This week we have something uh, interesting we're going to talk about: uh, how to code faster. Before we begin, um, you know, a, a lot of developers feel like they're not very quick at you know at getting code done, and I think some of it is is an actual like raw speed thing, and some of it is some other factors. And so we're going to talk about how to optimize this so that you can be more effective at, at actually getting code written and let's just see where this goes because sometimes it's not just, it's not just the speed, but I guess maybe a better way to put this would be how to code more effectively. Awesome. Some of that's speed, but some of it is not speed back to the basics. Uh, let's get the easy things out of the way first. Yeah. So it. starting off, you want to learn how to, uh, Touch type if you haven't already. And when I was in high school, I took a typing class. So did I. And my, my teacher would be absolutely appalled if she saw the way I type now. Because it, all the weird characters you use in programming kind of warp the way you type over time. Because it's, it's, it's as if the, it's like the E key got moved. It's different. You know, it's funny. Before, I, I took the typing class the second semester of my senior year. After I'd already had almost three years of programming. 
out of the group of us that kind of were friends and went through the classes together, I was the best of the programmers, but the worst typer. Yeah. Well, and I've actually met uh, quite a few programmers that do like the, this use two fingers. The hunchback. Yeah. And the thing is, is I find that they tend to be very, very deliberate programmers. They're very, they're actually pretty good at thinking things through because they have to. That said, if you, if you can't type, it does slow you down quite a bit. Uh, and so that, I mean, that's like the biggest thing to fix. It's obviously the, it's kind of the stupidest thing too, because it, it seems really obvious, but it's, it's important to point this out. And there's actually a site, uh, typing.io, um, that's pretty good for this. You can kind of practice there. It's a good resource. I've used it before. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the absolute basic. Another thing that, that comes up in all this is if you got a bad keyboard, replace it. I cannot believe how many programmers I know that put up with keyboards that are too small or they're, they've got a keyboard where the keys stick or it's just a weird shape. Like if you're not used to the natural keyboard like I have, you're trying to type on it, you'll hit the wrong key for a long time. Now, if I get a regular keyboard, I have a hard time with it. But if your keyboard just stinks for your productivity, then, you know, go replace it, okay? it's Even if the keyboard's $150, it doesn't take that long for it to pay off. i tell you what I would like to find. And if any of the listeners out there actually know of uh, one of these, that would be great. Uh, I want something that's like the ergonomic keyboard, like the Microsoft Natural keyboard, but I want it to be a gaming keyboard. Or not necessarily gaming, but I want the backlit functionality, and I want media player functionality. I don't just want to stop and pause button, but I want, you know, forward, back. I want it with with more of the functionality. I want a smarter keyboard, but I want it backlit, and I want a natural keyboard, ergonomic. I have not found anything like that. Yeah, but, mine mine has all that except it's not the ergonomic keyboard. That's a deal breaker for me. Mm-hmm. That that slows me down a lot. But I mean, the thing is, is getting a an appropriate keyboard. Look, this is a tool that you're going to be using eight hours a day. Saving thirty dollars on that is pretty much never going to be worth it. You think about that, even just for a two week period, that thirty dollars is worth it, or sixty dollars, or whatever. You know, it's, at some point there's a break even, obviously, but it's way on up there. So get a keyboard that that works well. You know, you could you could type on without hurting your hands. The one that I got, which is exactly what I want, and has everything you want except it's not the ergonomic type, it, it was like forty or fifty dollars. Yeah, I'd be for the thing I want. I'd be willing to pay two hundred easily. I have no problem with that whatsoever because a lot of times I'm sitting in the room and it's kind of dark, and a backlight a backlight would be nice. Being able to skip a track on a music player would be nice. Uh, but you know, the point is, is get a tool that actually works for the job. And, and again, th- these are the, the basic things. Um, another thing where people save money that doesn't make sense is your IDE. You know, what what environment are you writing code in? Uh, that also depends on what you're writing. And IDEs are getting cheaper or even a lot of them are being free. Yeah. And they're they're fairly functional. They can help you get the code out there more quickly, you know, with either with uh, some sort of code completion drop down, um, automatic checking of the code so that you, you find problems quickly instead of when you compile. What I've run into is not so much the cost of the IDE as the add-ons. Yeah, add-ons are a big piece of that. But again, uh, you know, I use Visual Studio, which Visual Studio is not cheap. Um, and I also use ReSharper. It's just very important to get these basics in place because a lot of times people will be extremely penny wise and pound foolish, as the old saying goes. I, you know, I've I've seen people uh, write JavaScript basically in 
you know, Notepad++. It's mm-hmm. Notepad++ isn't bad. I've written C-sharp in there and they compile the command line. But that's not the preferential situation mm-hmm. because it's slowing you down. And your time has, has value, so you want as much of a damage multiplier on that as you could possibly get. Um, you also want, and this is something that I have experience with, is to have a machine that is actually fast enough. Yeah, because you don't. No. Man. I mean, I have, I have a machine that is as fast as I could get for the amount of money I had when I bought it. Years ago. Well, and, you know, I just uh, I just upgraded at work. You know, they uh, I, I discovered I was spending quite a bit of time every day, probably north of an hour, maybe two hours, waiting on the machine. And it wasn't all in one chunk, right? It's like, oh, you type something and you wait. Yeah, that's annoying. Yeah, well, it breaks your flow. For one thing, um, another thing is, is again, it, it slows you down. You, you want to spend the money and, and get things fast enough where you can actually use your creative power when you have the creativity. Not, oh, I'm typing something. Oh, I've got to wait now. I've got a wait cursor spinning, and I got to sit here. Was it Service Pack Three or Service Pack Four of Visual Studio 2013? There was this idiotic dialogue that would pop up, and it would say, "Visual Studio is waiting on a background task." Which is stupid anyway, because if it's in the background and it's I'm waiting on it, it's a foreground task. Mm-hmm. But that bad nomenclature aside, that's extremely time wasting, and so you want to avoid having those kind of situations come up. And so, get a machine that's that's appropriately fast. Uh, the biggest thing I see right now is hard drive. Do not get a spinning platter for your OS drive. Get an SSD. Period. Those spinning platter drives are never. Fast enough, unless you're running something that's ancient. There's just no, there's no reason to do that. Now you, you want to get a bigger drive, maybe a se- you know, a secondary bigger drive for your actual storage. You can put your files there that you're compiling and all that stuff. But your OS, you know, where your swap file lives, those kind of things, put it on an SSD. One thing you'll see with Windows is a whole lot of, um, as it gets a little bit of memory pressure, it'll start writing um, out the hard drive. It dumps some of the memory out there and. You know, to free it up basically for faster operations, and that slows everything down because it's messing with the drive. So the faster you make that, the better. You also want to make sure you have enough uh, memory. Yes. That's an issue that I have with my laptop is it's only got 4 gigs of RAM. and Yeah, and my desktop only has 20 gigs. And I said only. My work machine's got 32, which is, it absolutely screams. But not having enough memory, what ends up happening is, is the memory gets full, and your operating system is going to say, okay, i got to take some things out of memory that are lower priority and put them somewhere. And it puts them on disk. Your swap file and all those things, that's what that is. Well, what did you just do? You said, okay, I have a fast system here, and I'm going to slow it down by using disk I.O., which is way, way slower. Especially with a spinning platter, it's, it's still slow with an SSD um, compared to memory. And memory slow compared to CPU registers, which is the next piece here. You want to get a processor that's actually fast enough that has um, you know, has some decent caching on it. Uh, we're trying to keep this content evergreen, so we're not going to put particular specs here because this is one of these things that you need to go to like Tom's Hardware or something like that online, get some decent specs. And I apologize for the, the sound of my sinuses. For some reason, they've just decided to clamp shut as I'm talking. Um... I don't really know why that is. It's sort of like having a slow machine. It's just an irritant. Um, but do get, you know, a CPU that's fast enough. You know, do get one with a bunch of cores. The best way I, I've found for a lot of this stuff is you you graph the capabilities versus the price. 
and you, you get the one right below the, the sharp inflection point. Because that usually is the best value. Mm-hmm. My experience, and I mean, I've done it that way since the 90s. It's worked pretty well. Uh, you get a, you know, get a ton of RAM. If somebody tells you to get 128 gig SSD, slap them. <laughs> get, get at least 240. 512 is better because you want to have enough room. There's one petabyte other. is best. Yeah, you know, you get a one petabyte SSD, and then you uh, you sit there and you try to figure out what you're going to do with all that space. But <laughs> you're going to record audio. <laughs> yeah, you're going to you know record audio and video, and uh, not delete the the temp files, and you're you're fine. You'll use the whole thing up. Another thing that you need to think about uh, with your machine is start thinking about all the processes that are running in the background. Uh, there's the Windows search process. That thing, if it kicks on at the wrong time, will slow you down. Oh, yeah. Big time. Uh, there's other processes. SQL Server. I've been burned by that a few times where, you know, if you don't have like a developer edition on your box, somebody, and this is not as big of a deal now because they've clamped down on the licensing, but I've worked in places that had the Enterprise Edition on developers' workstations, which is a big no-no from a licensing perspective. And no uh, business software alliance, I'm not telling you who it was, but that will eat memory because what the desktop edition or the you know developer level edition does with the way that it allocates memory is optimized for a development machine. The way the enterprise edition is optimized is this machine is a database server, period. And it's the only thing it does. And so they have assumptions that they're making that are not correct on a development machine at all. And that'll burn you. Now, another thing to watch for is uh, network I.O. You can have a lot of apps that will slow things down. Uh, we experience this a lot with Visual Studio at work because we're using Team Foundation Server. And every time it has to open a file, it has to actually call back to the server because it's dumb. And say, hey, let me check this file out. And there's this big handshake that goes on. That doesn't happen in the amount of time you type text. You wait on it. So you, you do want to avoid that. Some of that is, is picking the appropriate software for the job. Anything that calls home to be able to work, calls home while it works, and you can't keep going while that's going on, just cut that out. Figure out how to remove that from your stack. That That's not okay. This is why, if you remember, I was screaming and pitching a fit over the Visual Studio login to MSDN, where it says, oh, hey, I'm going to stop you in the middle of what you're doing and make you log into MSDN. It's like, well, if I don't have a network connection, then I'm just dead in the water. Plus, you stopped me typing when I was in the middle of the thaw and popped this thing up. Like, that's that's not acceptable from a speed perspective. Because I could also be on a high latency connection, and you're not able to actually connect to the server, but it's still live, so you don't get a thing that tells you that it's dead. You get a connection timeout, and you get to sit there and wait, what, a minute, two minutes, while your machine spins. So, you know, get those kind of things out of your architecture right now first. This is why this is the absolute basics is because sometimes people think that they can't code fast and what the real deal is is they just have a bad system. You know, either they don't have good hardware, they have bad software running, they have, you know, pieces in their stack that they're using that are getting in their way and that's actually slowing them down. So we want to throw these out there first uh, to make sure that everybody's got this out of the way because Sometimes you kind of have to argue a little bit to get things better. The next thing you want to do is, is reduce the amount of code you have to write. Yeah, you want to um, use code completion tools. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big part of it, right? Because if I could type three letters of a method name and hit tab and it puts it in there, you know, that's four keystrokes instead of a you know 15 or 20 character method name. That's keystroke saved. I didn't have to write that. So that's, a, that's an immediate direct win and 
most of the time it can be accomplished uh, in the development environment without really uh, contributing to a whole lot of memory pressure and a whole lot of other problems. I mean, it does, most of your IDEs are kind of heavy because they do a whole lot of stuff behind the, behind the scenes, but memory and processor time and all these other things are a whole lot cheaper than your time. So use them. That's, that's why we use, that's why we all have jobs is because we use machines to cut work down for other people. So let's start doing that for ourselves. Um, another thing to think about doing is generating code using templates. And I know this is a little bit controversial because a lot of people don't like generated code, but especially with a lot of boilerplate type stuff, uh, you know, talking to databases is a classic example. You know, you have available metadata, you can wrap it, get that metadata back and you can build a chunk of code that talks to the thing and abstracts it, you know, in a reasonable fashion. Do that. Don't hand code that. Make a template once and you can move faster once you have that template. So it's it's one of these things that you you buy the future now. You do the extra amount of work up front so that later on it's you're able to do more in less time. Right. Which is important, especially as schedules get rougher, because that happens later in a project. Typically the project doesn't start off with a bang as far as the schedule being horrible. That happens closer to the end, the more you've optimized your workflow where you can move faster, the less that's going to hurt you. Convention always beats configuration. So like if you've got a way that you do things, uh, a classic example of this is uh, Ruby on Rails. One of the reasons that that whole model did so well is they had, they were very opinionated. You know, a request comes in and it's slash, I don't know, users slash add. It goes to the user's controller, is the class that's receiving it, and it goes to add method. Boom. There's a known path. It's the same. You override it if you have to, but you keep a convention. That makes it a whole lot easier to remember things since you don't have to go look it up because that stops you coding. It reduces your error rate so that you don't have to go debug it. Um, it just makes it somewhat self-documented. It, it does. It gets a lot of pieces lined up for you. Plus, it's easier to write boilerplate code that then uses those conventions as well. And you know, Ruby really leveraged that a whole lot particularly like with their active record model, you know, talking to database tables, you know, they were able to use conventions, to, you know, for, for a lot of the querying and those kind of things. And it, it sped things up. That's why it was, you know, such a game changer when it happened. Also, you want to, uh, to use automated refactoring tools where possible for changes. Yes. Um, and one of the you know big deals here is like, let's say if I have to take, uh, I have a huge method and I want to take a piece out and make it into its own method because I realized, hey, I have to reuse this. If I have a tool where I highlight it and I hit a couple buttons that says extract method and I give it a name and the system figures that out and figures out, okay, are there any variables here that are dependent that I need to pass into that method and that sort of thing, that's faster than you figuring it out. There's no way that you're going to outthink the CPU as far as raw ability to calculate. So let the machine do the work and use tools that help with that. Uh, there's a lot of really good tools and a lot of different platforms for this sort of thing. Um, if you're just using a raw text editor, you don't get those. Yeah, it goes back to using a real code editor. Yeah. And there's a lot of, well, like I said, there's the prices are coming down. I mean, I just take Microsoft, for example, uh, Visual Studio 2015 Community. Yeah, and it has refactored tools in it, too. It does. Built and in. It's, it's free. And I, I remember when you and I were working on some stuff for our own uh, projects that uh, 
you know, I told you I was using community and you asked me, well, does it do this and this and this? And I was like, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And so there's no reason most of the time not to use automated refactoring tools and to use a heavier IDE that does work for you. That's, that's the point. You would be automating it if it wasn't repeatable and if it wasn't faster to automate than to do manually. That's sort of the point of all the computing stuff. Now, everything I've suggested so far, if you're a systems programmer, I, I can't help you. Because a lot of those guys, they can't get away with as much because of just the level of stuff that they're doing. But for the average line of business developer, there's absolutely no reason to not have these kind of tools in place where the system figures stuff out for you. And to use tool chains that allow that to happen. Sometimes your language gets in the way. A prime example of that is SQL. SQL is absolutely awful to work with. Because the structure of the language does not make it easy on the development environment. Like if you're writing an IDE and you're starting a select statement, you know, select star or select, you know, whatever dot, what field names, right? Well, how does it know what field names to select from? Well, that's further ahead in the statement. It has no way of intelligently helping you. And so sometimes it's the language you use, but a lot of the time it's just, just quit being cheap. Get a tool that does the job and be done with it. I mean, this, we are professionals. That's the idea here. Use the appropriate tool for the job. Don't be, you know, don't be the guy that's like, oh, I got to use, you know, I'm going to get in there on Linux and I'm going to use Gedit to edit this massive JavaScript project day in and day out. Get an IDE, dude. It's okay. Yes, you saved. You know, yeah, it's it's great that Gedit, you know, can load, you know, however many kilobytes it can load in or whatever. And I'm sure it's faster. It's a little easier on the system, but the amount of time that you spend. Trying to make that work versus a you know a, a solid tool, and you do have some of those on Linux, very very good ones. Yeah, you really do. Yeah, there's just no reason to do that, and the performance difference that is that's totally optimizing. It's premature optimization is what it is. You're optimizing the wrong thing. Um, another thing you're going to want to do is start to use libraries uh, for repetitive functionality, either libraries that you wrote or libraries that somebody else wrote. It's even better if somebody else wrote them and they're supporting them. Uh, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. I don't know how many projects I've been on that have written their own logging library because somebody didn't like the way that some other log library worked and they decided, I'm just going to roll one in-house. And there's no reason for that. They wrote, they had to write all this code and that can be kind of tricky. Like you think, okay, I'm just dumping into a text file, but what about thread safety? What about uh, not choking I.O.? Because, oh, you're doing something that's writing a whole lot to the log. Are you going to slow down I.O. on something that's actually critical? And so there's a lot of little pieces there that people don't think about. So try not to write code that you don't need. But the less code that you write, the better. That's, that's why the whole industry is moving towards this mindset of stitching pieces together rather than building things. Is because the pieces work. The, the problem is you've got a couple of different mindsets within development. You've got the... You got the nine to fivers. Yeah, they have this mindset pretty well. They do. And then you got the people like us that you know will work nine to five and then go home and code on our own side. Right, and you find little things that you hate. I mean, I wrote my own data access layer. Of course, mine is you know very very different than the way a lot of people write theirs, and it's optimized for a very specific set of circumstances that the others have ignored. Looks well, like I'm currently writing my own blogging engine now. True, it's mainly a I'm mainly using it as a learning process. Yeah, uh, with different things, but 
I don't know that it works at the blogging engine level though, because you're building a product as far as that goes. Whereas this is more like, oh, I need a special library for this thing that's already been solved a hundred times. And it comes down to the, you know, like you said, don't reinvent the wheel, but we see it and we go, well, I want a wheel with 20 spokes versus a wheel with 10 spokes. Yeah. And I can do that. I know how to. And it's possible, so I'm going to go do it because that's the mindset yeah. of a lot of developers. Yeah, and it's the mindset that your time has no value or that you're not needed elsewhere. And it's also different if this is something that you're doing on the side or something you're doing for fun or education as opposed to... I would argue that it isn't um, in a lot of cases. Like, you know, back in school we had to do uh, linked lists in C++. And you have to understand how that implementation works. You know, I get that. But the problem is, is they never told us about STL. They never told us about the standard template library. It didn't come up. It's like, oh yeah, somebody smarter than you has already done this. That's like teaching you the long way, like the algebraic derivations. Yeah. And then not ever teaching you the calculus way of doing it. Yeah. Or in my opinion. Uh, not teaching you integration first instead of derivatives first, but that's a whole other topic. I found that a whole lot easier. I actually got a calculus book after college that started with integration and then went to derivatives, and it made so much more sense. It's weird. It's a book from the 20s. So, you know, leverage pre-built pieces as much as possible for stuff that's not critical to your business app or to the line of business or whatever you're doing. If your app is not a logging app, you should not generally speaking, be writing your own logging library because that's not what you're doing. It's the same reason that, to, to give an example, the people that built a skyscraper didn't mine their own iron for the steel. It's because that's not what they were doing. Specialization of labor is how civilization happens. We need to use it too. Next, you want to uh, reduce the number of errors you make. And uh, one of the really good ways to do this is... To plan ahead. Yeah, if you're having to rewrite, um, you basically just waste the time. And if you're if your intent is to get faster, to get more effective, to get more stuff done, that that doesn't help you at all. I mean, there's there's always exploratory code, right, to try to figure out if something will work that you intend on throwing away, and that's okay. It, but it's a different thing when you write the system and you get halfway through and you figure out that it was wrong. I would say exploratory code is planning ahead. It is. You know, that's exactly that's like, what it is. Yeah, it's it's planning ahead to find what works, throw that away, and then write. Yeah, you do a simple proof of concept, and you know that's okay. So that's not what we're we're really after here, yeah. right? It's it's more of the idea of make sure that you're doing the right thing before you start doing it, because it doesn't matter how fast you run if you run the wrong direction. Very very good point, um, and. Also, you want to drill your typing uh, for reduction of errors before working on speed. And this goes back to the basics, learning to touch type and just and learning to type. Yeah. And, you know, when we were in school, that was the big thing was get your error rate down. I had to take, take a typing exam uh, freshman year of college. You know, I think I, there, you had three opportunities to pass, you know, and then you had to take a typing class. If you didn't, I passed on the third because at that point, I think I could type like 60-something words a minute, but I made errors. And I still do, by the way. You're hitting all these weird keys at weird angles that are, on keyboards that are not built for programmers. You're going to make errors anyway. But 
or when your your autocorrect or your uh, you know, code completion tool completes the wrong thing and you have to hit you know That's back cool out thing. of it. But you know, drill it and and actually practice just because here's the thing we learned. You know, you and I both did martial arts, and you learned that if you can do the technique slow, it doesn't necessarily mean you can do it fast. But if you can do it fast, that does doesn't necessarily mean you can really do it at all. If you're smooth when you're slow, it's easier to get to fast than if you're bad when you're slow and you're covering it up with speed. It's just it's an easier uh, it's an easier growth curve, and you know because it's more accurate. You know, one thing you can actually do if you really if you want to see how often you screw up, uh, this works a little bit better in Word and some other environments with like VBA type setup. But if you've got a scripting environment that can listen for macro, you know that you have a macro attached to a certain key, put one on the backspace. Pops up a message box. You will very quickly realize how often you hit that thing mm-hmm. to correct an error. The the only problem I could see with that is like you were saying, where autocomplete completes something and. It's, it's very annoying, and one thing that takes me time sometimes is when I'm typing and autocomplete, it gives a list of possibilities, and I have to scroll down to the one that I want that ends, like, I type the entire word out. Yeah, and it gets it wrong. Mm-hmm. I especially see that with uh, things where you've got method names that have multiple capital letters in there, and it thinks, oh, you know, you're, you're using the, you know, dot, what you know, exe method well there's another method in there called educate xenophobes you know uh everywhere everywhere and it picks that one instead of dot exe you know i've I've seen that pattern a lot it's good you know we we should place charades or something sometime (laughs) we could both be terrible at it um but you know i've seen that pattern and that that will burn you and sometimes your your coding practices that that informs you that you've got something you probably ought to tweak a little bit if you can get away with it so that it's not burning everybody from now on. That makes a huge difference if you can get, you know, get that sort of stuff down. Um, another thing I've, I've also seen as far as uh, wiring stuff up like that is setting it up where control C and control V don't work, where people can't, you know, copy code in and paste it in um, because that gets rid of bad habits real fast. I, I know some developers that I, if I could go back in time, I would break that functionality in their keyboard. I'd rewrite the driver. Or something. There's, I've cleaned up some code from a guy that I think there's 40 instances of the same thing. And it's like, oh yeah, he was fast. But he still used a whole lot more keystrokes than he had to. Because he could have written that in one place and fixed it in one place. But he didn't. That's what I was saying. I'm like, if I have to copy code, when I'm writing anything, if I need to go back and copy and paste something, it immediately goes out. It's usually the third time. So, like, the second time, I'm like, okay, there's two places where the same code is. And that irritates me a little bit. But the third time, it's right out. I I, I do that mainly at this stage because I'm trying to... You're trying to build good instincts, which is what this is all about, yeah. right? That's why you want to go slow. I'm trying to build good in- instincts and trying to be able to recognize when I'm writing something that it's going to be used multiple times. Yeah. And that's not always possible, but the more I can recognize it, the more I can just put it in its own method or whatever. Yeah, and you get a weird, or not really, it's not even weird, you get a gut feeling about it mm-hmm. after a while, and it tends to be fairly accurate. 
Um, of course, before we mentioned the uh, templates and the code completion and all that other stuff, that also gets your error rate down, right? If, if your code completion is working properly, which most of the time they do, that's why people still use them, it will save you typing most of the time and save you misspelling most of the time. And so, the, you know, those tools can kind of help with the error rate as well. Uh, now, to talk about the actual improvement of coding speed, which we've got all this way into this podcast before we've gotten to. And the reason is, is you have to have the precursors first. Otherwise, there's there's no amount of this that's really going to fix it. You know, if your machine is slow, you're making a lot of errors, you have to be so much faster than humanly possible to go as fast as somebody that doesn't have those problems. Well, you gotta you got to learn how to solve for X before you can learn to do a derivative. Yeah, or you got to take the lead shoes off before you run a marathon if you want to win. Mm-hmm. Right? You're basically handicapping yourself from the get-go if you don't do the other things. So uh, let's, let's get into a little bit of that. Uh, the first thing is learn and practice your IDE's shortcut key combinations. Anytime you find yourself opening a menu, like doing an alt to get a menu down or to open it with a mouse, figure out the key combination to get there. And you'll have to practice this a lot. But once you do, you don't have to take your hands off the keyboard. And every time you take your hands off the keyboard to move the mouse, think about how much time that takes. That's a second, two seconds, three seconds, depending on how deep it is. Like even with not just ID, the IDE, but um, Windows. With Windows, I looked up uh, the different shortcut codes. And I even showed you one the other day. Yeah, I didn't know about Control-Shift-Escape. I'd always use Control-Alt-Delete and then hit the Task Manager because that's... You know, when I learned it. Yeah, I mean, when I when I first started with computers, Control-Alt-Delete opened up the task manager. Yeah, and now it doesn't quite do that. I remember yeah. when that opened the task manager, you hit it twice to restart. Yeah. You better hope you didn't have a twitchy finger when you're just trying to hit it once. Yes, exactly. <laughs> there goes your word, Doc. Mm-hmm. You better re- stay up all night and rewrite that paper. Yep. Uh, which is probably why they fixed it. But yeah, learn those keystrokes. Uh, learn the, the shortcut key combinations for things. Uh, if it doesn't have a shortcut key and it's something you use a lot, most of your development environments will let you remap things. Do that. There's like You want to avoid taking your hands off the keyboard as much as possible if, you're, if your goal is to be fast. And that leads right into the next one, which is learn to get by without the mouse where possible. Yeah. And I'll say this... Um, with my laptop, the uh, the pad, mouse pad, yeah. doesn't always work. And there have been times where, like, the battery died in my Bluetooth mouse, and I have had to completely use... That's why That's why I originally looked up the Windows shortcut co- keys, because I was using the keyboard to navigate around Windows. Yeah, we ought to really... Uh, we probably ought to share those with the audiences. So well, I'm, I'm working on an infographic for it. Yeah, that... That would be good, just just to show you kind of what's possible. Because a lot of times, people don't know what's possible. Like I had a uh, you know a mutual friend of ours. I was showing him in Visual Studio how you could hold down the Alt key and drag. This is a click and drag operation, mm-hmm. obviously, but it's the same kind of thing. And you could take a vertical column mm-hmm. in the text and replace one character in all those lines. You know, and, and type in place, and it repeat at a whole bunch of different locations. He had no idea that was there. And then, like, three days later, he came back with a trick that he figured out from that and showed me, which was sort of kind of the circle being completed there. <laughs> I was like, all right, learn those things. That, that will speed you up, 
immeasurably. The other thing it does is it just makes you more comfortable. Like at, at some point you stop thinking about what menu something is under and you just do the thing. You know, when somebody asks you what key combination you hit, you actually end up having to think about it. That's when you know that you've got it. That's when it just flows out of you. The next point um, is multiple monitors, particularly when you're doing professional development. I mean, it's, it's one thing if you're working in a coffee shop, right? You don't want to drag in your, your Mac and your giant, you know, 4K display. I have seen that. Yeah. You don't want to be like the ultimate hipster and do that. But if you're working in an office environment, two monitors will help you a lot. I have four on my home uh, desktop, and it's great. Yeah, if you look at some of the pictures, you can see uh, where he has our logo on all four of them. Well, I mean, I can, you know, they're widescreen, so I could split. I can have two documents per screen. I have a total of eight things open and be looking from one to another and never have to hide or show a window to do that. So I could be typing on one and look up and to the right, and there's one document that I need, and then if there's something else I need, I can look down there. It's all there. Well, you guys should see my setup at home because I've got all I have is my laptop, and uh, <laughs> I have an old square Dell monitor, the the one I had back in college. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, um, dude, if you need a monitor, no, no, I, it works great, and it's really good for reading because it's, it's not too wide. It's not too wide, but it's it's older and. It's not as like bright and crisp, yeah. and it's easier on my eyes to read on that one. So, especially when I'm doing like a tutorial for learning, I'll have um, my IDE or code editor on my desktop monitor, and then I'll have the tutorial on the that. One. Yeah, yeah, I kind of do fairly similar things when I'm learning. I tend to have uh, I'll have the video on one of the lower screens, mm-hmm. and then the IDE open on the other, and then. Typically, I'll have some other windows open as well, either other code windows or a database or something along those lines. But multiple monitors, that's where it's at. I mean, you, you would not believe how much time you spend switching. Oh, yeah. When you brought in the extra monitor here, because uh, I was coming in and working on my laptop, and I asked you if you had an extra monitor, and you yeah. brought that one in, and it just it made a huge difference. Yeah, and you know it, it gets... It's a huge jump from one to two. It's a decent jump from two to three. At when you start getting towards four monitors and above, it gets a little ridiculous. Like the monitor stand I have would look horribly unbalanced, missing a monitor up top. And I don't want to have the triangle effect because that's just kind of I've seen that and it doesn't work very well. So I have four. Um, sometimes the the one in the upper right hand corner, like right now, it doesn't have anything on it. Well, like right now, I've just got my laptop because the extra monitor is sitting on my desk. Um, I say my desk, the desk you have set up for me. And- card table. Yeah, the card yeah. table pretty much, yeah. But that will save you a lot of time. And if you're trying to sell this in a corporate environment, here's how you do it. If you've got a video card there that will, have, that will handle two monitors, it doesn't work otherwise. If your employer will not... Uh, hook you up with a second monitor. Wait till a coworker is on vacation and borrow their second one. Like work, you know, clear it first. Just go, hey, I just want to try this and just see. And sometimes you can actually sell it that way. Although most of them, if you're in a professional development shop, they'll they'll already have two monitors. Yeah. They're, they're, that's not going to be something they're going to ask about because that's been proved mm-hmm. over and over. Now, if you ask for four, they're <laughs> I haven't been able to swing that, and I'm persuasive. <laughs> We'll just take a picture of uh, what you got at home. Yeah, the return the ROI does drop 
you know, as you add more of them, but for at, at the least the first couple extras, it's, it's well worth it. You know, I said, I have, I have those two monitors. I also have a, uh, a third monitor that uh, I have my Raspberry Pi hooked up to. Uh, of course, my setup at home, I've got my, my keyboard for the laptop and then a separate keyboard for the Raspberry Pi and a mouse for the laptop and a mouse for the Raspberry Pi. So it looks weird. Yeah, you need a KVM switch is what you need is what it sounds like. So anyway, on to the next next thing. When you're coding, it's helpful to also be conscientious and think about what you're thinking about. In other words, meta thought a little bit. And the idea here is, is when you realize that you're having to stop and think, stop and think. Like, don't be doing design as you're coding because the mechanics of design, the mechanics of coding, and the thought processes are very different and it will slow you down on both. Or I would say if you reach, if you reach a point where you do need to, to think about the design and think about what you're coding. Yeah, because you're going to think about it anyway, yeah. and you're going to be sort of redesigning in your head. But when it gets to the point where the cognitive load is too much and it's starting to visibly slow your coding down, stop coding and start designing until that's fixed. Or switch to working on something else. Yeah. If you can. And most of the time you can't, but uh, in my experience. But at the very least, like do one thing well and focus on that. So if you're, if you're getting to the point where you're designing to the degree that you can't code quickly, like you're having to stop and, go and ponder something for a minute, that should be a signal to you that to fix that first. And uh, as a corollary to that, start on code that you know you can get working first. Yeah. And part of this is just getting you know, quick wins. This helps your mood. This helps your focus. Uh, you're not discouraged out of the gate. You know, you've, you've got those victories and you just start, it kind of starts snowballing. Yeah, I mean, it, making those those unknowns into knowns helps you to deal with the unknown unknowns. Thank you, Dick Cheney. You're the one that typed it out. I know, but I was, uh, you know, that was that's one of the weird speeches that he gave. And I knew exactly what he meant because he, but he was talking about unknown unknowns. The more things that you have already lined up that you can do, that you got in place, the less your second order ignorance will hurt. You understand the difference between first order ignorance and second order ignorance, right? Like first order ignorance. I do, but explain. First order ignorance is when you don't know something, but you know you don't know it. Second order ignorance is the unknown unknowns. It's where you don't know something and you don't know that you don't know it. Right. And so the idea is, is that if you handle the pieces that you know and actually know, not that you're guessing based off of your projection of what the unknowns are, but you actually know it. That makes those other pieces easier. That means less churn, less errors, faster coding. It's all strategy. Notice I'm not showing you finger exercises to type faster because that's the wrong problem. If you're going, oh, how can I type faster? How can I move my fingers faster? Well, move your fingers faster. I don't know. Don't 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 have fat fingers. I don't know what to tell you. That's that's an optimization problem that has a very low ceiling. And you can't fix it past a certain point. But what you can do to move your fingers faster goes back to the absolute basics of the touch type. Yeah. Like if you're if you're hunting and pecking, learning to touch type will move your fingers faster. Practicing. Not having the cognitive overhead of trying to think through a problem while you're typing it will make it all faster. All these things go together, but none of these are the mechanical act of typing because that's not the thing we're trying to really optimize here because you you aren't judged on how fast you can type. You're judged on what you get done. So how do you make this happen? Well, 
honestly, on a lot of these things, daily practice. You know, practice using your code completion tools. Uh, practice your shortcut keys. Uh, I've seen a, a few websites that actually recommend code katas. I don't know if you're familiar with a kata, the yeah. martial arts. That's a sequence of practice moves, and you practice it constantly. And you work at it until it's second nature. You're going to have to do that with your IDEs, uh, shortcut keys. And that will make you an order of magnitude faster if you do that. Like, just take 15 minutes every morning and have a scenario that you work out. Like a certain, you know, it can be the same problem. And work it out and just use the key combinations and, and hit all those points. Get those spaced rep- repetitions. And it'll stick eventually. And you will be able to code much faster and you won't have the cognitive overhead because instead of going, Oh, that's under the edit menu. And then I go to this menu and then this other thing. And then I have to hit this other button. If you could just hit three keys and then move on, you've almost, you've abstracted an operation out. Uh, another thing you'll need to do, especially while you're learning is keep cheat sheets nearby. And as Will was uh, saying this, I pulled out my, uh, my Linux notebook. Yeah, he's got a little notebook here that's got all his, uh, you know, all the, oh, is that console? Yeah, command line stuff? Pretty much a book that I printed out called An Introduction to the Linux Command Shell for Beginners. Of course, I added more than just came with it, but uh, yeah, I, I printed these off, slid them into uh, little plastic holders. I've got, uh, the front of it is just has uh, hex codes for colors, because... Yeah. That's easy to look at and remember. Then, before it really gets into it, I have the Linux Bash Shell cheat sheets. Yeah. Which are and great because they've got, it's just... Yeah, the basics. The very basics. And then, when you get past that, it gets into the book and... Yeah, I will tell you the way that you've got that is okay. However, I wouldn't put a book in there. I would have a sheet or two of stuff I'm working on. Well, that's, that's why I've which, got the, the cheat sheets up front. I mean, this is this is my, my Linux book. Yeah, it's your it's reference. My reference book. And in the front of it, I have the cheat sheets. I also have them pinned up around my desk. Yeah. And and that will help you more than anything because you know, as you're learning to code faster, you're going to slow down because you're trying to build good habits. Obviously, during that slowdown, you don't want to slow down to the point where you're not productive. And that's why you want to keep the cheat sheets there is so that you kind of set a floor on how much it slows you down yeah. while you're learning the new tricks. So uh, that about wraps it up for uh, how to code more effectively or how to code faster. Yeah, so to, re- to recap, get your basics down, learn to touch type, uh, replace your keyboard if you need to, uh, use a real editor, um, and actually have a machine that's fast enough. Once you've got that, start working on reducing the amount of code you actually have to write. Uh, so start using code completion tools. Generate code using templates. Start using uh, conventions over configuration. Start using automated refactoring tools and libraries to handle functionality that you don't already have instead of writing it. Uh, reduce the amount of errors you make by planning ahead, drilling your typing to reduce errors before you work on speed. Also use templates, uh, code completion, and automated refactoring tools uh, to help reduce your error rates. Improve your actual coding speed by learning and practicing your IDE shortcut key combinations. Learn to get by without the mouse. Um, avoid context switching costs by having multiple displays. That that will help you a ton. Uh, stop when you realize you're having to stop and think and start on stuff that you know that you can actually get working first yeah. so that you get momentum. 
And again, this this is best done with daily practice and keeping cheat sheets around and just grinding through it. That's that's really the best way to do this because it is it's a you know memory and repetition thing. Well, I think that kind of wraps it up. So, uh, Will, what do you have for us? Just a, a tip, and I've I think I've probably brought this up before, but I kind of want to reiterate it here a little bit. Um, there's really this is something that's really stuck with me a lot. Uh, since I probably heard it first like five or six years ago. And that is that when somebody's asking you to do something or asking you if you want to do something, there's really only two answers. It should either be a heck yes or a no. Okay. And the reason is, is that as you get more busy, your the, the value of your time increases. And so if it's not something that provides significant value for you, like if you're like, oh, it might work and nah, 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 and, well, you're, and you're trying to convince yourself, don't do that. The answer is no. If, if, however, your reaction is, oh, yeah, that's great. That's a good upside for me. Then do that. That way you can concentrate your focus on the things that are winning strategies versus things that are, oh, this may work out okay. If you have a question or comment for us, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed under Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up to our email list, be sure and check out the website at www.completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time.